Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Friday, October 17, 1997, and the Brisbane Broncos walked off Ericsson Stadium as world champions, adding the Visa World Club Challenge trophy to the Telstra Cup they'd won a month earlier. The Broncos dispatched the Hunter Mariners 36-12 in an unmemorable contest before a small crowd in Auckland and with not many more people watching back in Australia. It was a fittingly anticlimactic ending to a Super League season that had promised so much but delivered little. This is part three of the World Club Challenge, the 36th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? <laughs> you didn't tell me you are going to do that. Um, that was actually pretty good. This is what I'm saying. I think it's great, but I'm getting smashed all over the place from our English listeners. I just had to start with that because I had to listen back to the last episode in preparation for this, and I did note that I promised at the end to do it. So I won't do it for the full episode. I'll spare the listeners that, but give me something. I think I'm at least half the way there. So um, it sounds like an episode of Bullseye. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. This is part three of our World Club Challenge chapter. This is the concluding part of this. So we'll see the conclusion of the tournament and the aftermath. But what a ride it's been so far. I'm actually feeling, um, I'm starting to feel a bit disheartened because we've been through, you know, the rise of it. It was really exciting. You know, what's going to happen in the court cases. We've been through the kicking off of the domestic competitions. That's exciting. Now it's getting to the absolute failure part. It's just... Oh, oh yeah. And it's such a... After all this promise, domestically, it was so lukewarm the whole way through. And then you had this in the middle of it. There was just zero chance of Super League... <laughs> going ahead after this year, reunification or, or not. This just put a bow on a very sad year in rugby league. Well, I mean, like, did anyone actually want reunification after watching this? It's like <laughs> such a turn-off. <laughs> One of the reasons for starting this series was us looking at the legacy of Super League and seeing scars that still haven't healed 25 years after and failed mergers and fans who never came back and all this drama, but really when you actually go through the 1997 season and look at everything that happened, like the World Club Challenge, it's remarkable that rugby league fans en masse were so forgiving and so willing to instantly just get on with it from 1998 onwards. Well, I mean, as a counterpoint to the disheartening feeling, there's a heartening feeling in that the fans are as resilient as the game itself. Mm. It's the one thing we've learned from this series is the fans can take a beating, mate. Yeah, and they certainly took one this year and in this tournament. So let's get on with it. And I'll open with a quote from Graham Bicknell in Where Else? Super League magazine previewing the second round <laughs> of World Club Challenge fixtures that 
started in late July and went through into August. This was Bicknell. The imponderables are many and varied as we go into the second round of three Visa World Club Challenge matches in two hemispheres. Nothing is cut and dried. So many more imponderables in play. The tournament was anyone's, as we all know. Uh, and <laughs> This was decades before the fake news era, and he's just coming yeah. out with absolute <laughs> lies. I think uh, Donald Trump may have been a subscriber to Super League magazine. That, that's <laughs> <laughs> but Bicknell went on. Before it all kicked off, no one would have given Paris Saint-Germain a snowball's hope in hell of making the finals, but they can. And the interesting thing about that line is that, yes, it was very true that Paris still could have made the finals, but that had nothing to do with how they were going on field and everything to do with the fact that, in many cases, one win would have been enough to get a team into the finals of the World Club Challenge. Even Halifax, who, as we mentioned last week, were losing by 47 points a game, one win would have seen them go through. (laughs) Can you imagine if they made the final after losing 76? (laughs) That would have been the perfect ending to it, Halifax somehow winning a game and going through the finals. But as it turns out, as we'll get to, the teams that made the finals didn't make much of a better showing than Halifax would have. But um, if Halifax made it, imagine the jerseys they would have sold. (laughs) (laughs) So in England, one win was enough to go through to the finals. In Australia, the exact opposite was in play. So in John Lang's words, one slip means death. So going into that second round, Canterbury could be considered dead in the World Club Challenge and so could the Perth Reds. They had both lost games in the first round of matches and it meant that there were still eight Australian teams in the running. The teams that went over to England, and I'll say at the start, no Australian team lost in Australia in that second round or through to the finals. So there were five English victories in that second round of matches, all of them on English soil. So by the end of that English leg, Adelaide had lost two games and they were out. The Cowboys had lost a game and they were out. And perhaps most surprisingly, Canberra uh, lost to London. And so they could be considered out of the tournament. See, it is a competitive event. Let's not go that far, but it it was... (laughs) It was a great win for London. They were down 14-0 at half time before storming home to win 38-18. to I think Laurie Daly's mind was in the dressing room with the Australian cricket team because this was his statement on that loss. I must admit it was little more than a holiday for us and our attitude was reflected in our first game on English soil. We led London 14-0. I'm sure we were expecting to cruise to another big win. We clocked off embarrassingly and ended up going down. The way they just nonchalantly admit to not trying like, <laughs> as a professional athlete, that's acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it just goes to show you that this was one of the real difficulties of the tournament was keeping the Australian teams focused when it was not only a chance to go on tour on the other side of the world, but they were going over with the expectation that they were just going to win just by turning up. And although in yeah. a lot of cases that was true there was still some work to be done on the field and Canberra failed to do that on this occasion. In Australia, it was a different matter with English teams not really having any prospects of victory. Clever marketers in Australia capitalised on this with an ad in the paper with a picture of a broken leg x-ray and the line, (laughs) 
see St. Helens before they go to St. Vincent's. <laughs> that is an outstanding piece of wordplay marketing. I love it. It's very yeah, um, I, I, New York Postish or Sunnish. I thought it was great too. And in the Rugby League Week, it was uh, described as a tasteless campaign. But really, what can you do but lean in to the debacle? You can't sell it as a legitimate tournament and try to make out that it was going to be a clash of the titans. All you had was the fact that the English teams were going to get pummeled. So I thought it was brilliant marketing. So that was about all they could do. And when you had continued mismatches, including a return match of the Warriors, who were last in the Australian Super League, taking on runaway leaders Bradford in Auckland this time. And at the end of that, the Warriors end up 64 to 14 winners. It's not good. You can't come back from that. Yeah. And they immediately followed that up with a 70 to 6 win against St. Helens. And the Warriors, I think you'll see they progress to the semifinals, along with the Broncos, who understood the importance of running up scores and managed to keep their eyes on the prize the whole way through, despite, in Gordon Tallis's words, being on the drink for two weeks. <laughs> the Warriors are probably the best example of legitimate cup football in the World Club Challenge, had absolutely nothing to play for in the domestic competition and had been awful all year, but rose to the heights in the World Club Challenge and played consistently good football all the way through. Also playing consistently good football all the way through were the Hunter Mariners. And at this point, I want you to tell me a bit about something you've mentioned several times to me over the years, but you were actually at the Hunter Mariners match at Topper Stadium against Castleford. Yeah, it was a great day too. And um, ridiculously small crowd of 3,000 people. And that was generous, I think. It felt like a local Toronto Scorpions crowd yeah. in size. But because of the cast contingent, there couldn't have been more than a dozen of them, probably, maybe 20 max. And they made that much noise, flags waving, just had this great atmosphere. And it's just really exciting just to see an English side in the person. Yeah, yeah. And that is the promise of the World Club Challenge. And there is still something cool about that. As a fan, the opportunity to travel the world, as a home fan for you, getting to experience English rugby league culture, like it's all there. It just should have been done in a more concentrated or targeted manner. Another aspect, mate, was the fact that the Mariners themselves were this sort of thrown together um, underdog sort of vibe team too. They were yeah. playing above their weight. So that was exciting in itself. And I think you can put it down to Graham Murray, just yeah. having a Murray vibe mm. in a negative cauldron of Newcastle, right? It had something different. It wasn't just, you know, North Sydney coming to Marathon to play the Knights. Yeah, totally. And I think the Graham Murray thing, it's interesting that obviously by this stage, the Hunter Mariners were on death's door. If they were going to merge with the Knights, it was probably going to be really who kept the job. So Murray knew that his cards were marked, whatever happened. And his performances with the Mariners led to interest in England. And he ended up getting the gig coaching leads, instantly takes them from mid table to near the top of the table. They were losing grand finalists in 1998, uh, finished second then, third in 1999 before coming back to the Roosters after that. But we've spoken about our admiration for Murray on multiple occasions, but he also seems like a guy that was tailor-made for English football as well, and I'm sure Leeds fans have some strong memories of Murray. Absolutely, and he was doing that in between his Parisian tourist board duty. <laughs> 
I wonder if the Leeds Tourist Board got a similar statement. I'm very impressed <laughs> with Leeds. <laughs> uh, so at that Castleford game, the official crowd was 3,378. One of those was Johnny Raper, who was making his first venture into Super League, or second if you count his drunken attempts to pimp out Aaron. But his other son, Stuart, was actually the coach of Castleford. So Johnny Raper was in attendance. He was asked about it and he said, I came to Newcastle to watch my son's team play and that's all there is to it. So he wouldn't be drawn on any Super League speculation. I liked this line from Stuart Raper. My dad's not a big fan of Super League, but he hasn't chastised me in any way for my decision that it was where my future lay. He supports me even though he doesn't agree with me. I know he's right behind me in what I'm trying to do here. I thought that was just a nice little moment in the midst of all this. So I'm not spending much time going through results and talking about particular games because there's not really a whole lot to talk about. So we're moving rapidly towards the finals and the aftermath. But to get there, I'm going to read out a line from Dean Ritchie that came in a Telegraph article at the end of the first round. There's a possibility that an Australasian side may be undefeated in the preliminary rounds, yet miss out on the finals due to percentages. And it's also conceivable that a British team not having won a game may also reach the finals. So that scenario was brought up as a possibility during the first round of the World Club Challenge. By the end of the second round, we were hurtling towards that possibility. There was the almost certainty that winless teams would go through. And then there was the prospect of a winless team not making the finals. And that is exactly what played out at Panthers Stadium for their matchup against St. Helens. So Penrith had gone 5-0, and St. Helens 0-5. and But because of percentages, if Penrith wanted to go through to the finals, they needed to beat St. Helens by 47 points. <laughs> I mean, if you design a format, you've always got to think of the worst-case scenario. If this happens, is it going to fall apart? Yeah. There are 17 different pockets where it could fall apart, and they just ignored them. Yeah, yeah. There was such a narrow window of it going right with the yeah, way the yeah. pools were set out, The you know, <laughs> this situation. There was such a small needle to thread that they had no chance. So as it turned out, St. Helens had a lot riding on the game too because they had not won a game. If they wanted to go through to a playoff with the top team from Pool B in England, they needed to lose by 12 points or less. So... It turned out to be a very close game with Penrith winning 32 to 26, but that meant that they were knocked out and the close margin of victory meant that St. Helens went through. So you had the strange situation of the Panthers walking off, you know, sad while St. Helens broke into wild celebrations on the field. I was thinking after I discussed it last week about winning teams trying to run up scores to make the finals, we didn't consider the fact that the losing teams were battling as hard as they could as well to the end. Mm. So it looks as though they've given up at 60 minutes and let the score run up, but they're actually playing double yeah. hard, <laughs> which is worse. Yeah. So St. Helens get the win, even though they lost on field. They go through to a playoff with the top team from Pool B, who ended up being Paris Saint-Germain. As it turns out, it was an easy win for St. Helens. They won 42-4. to 
which some supporters questioned whether or not that was the right decision. If they tanked the game, they could have got on with their domestic season and had a nice break at the end of it. But as it turned out, they win. So had to head over to Brisbane to face a firing squad there. So was there really much benefit to getting that win? I'm actually proud that they didn't try and throw the game or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's good that they didn't. There's a bit of sadness in the fact that Paris could have been the Hunter Mariners of the European sides. Not that they had a prospect of winning or making the final, but just in the fact that the Hunter Mariners' last ever game was the World Club Challenge final. Paris, had they gone through, they would have presumably had their last game as a quarterfinal before getting knocked out. But as it turns out, they lost and they were very much on death row at this point. And just at this point, wanted to go through the Paris Saint-Germain experience and what a sad couple of years it was for something that started with so much promise. The first game of Super League played in Paris against Sheffield. It seemed like this new era and it all fell apart so quickly and so comically. So the writing was probably on the wall from early in the season when Peter Mulholland was sacked. That happened shortly before the first round of the World Club Challenge. His quote was, It was pretty much a disaster from the start, but I took the job knowing it was going to be a challenge, and I'm bitterly disappointed that I wasn't given the opportunity to give it more of a go. It's well documented on this podcast how much of a good bloke Peter Mulholland was. If he can't get it running, who could? Yeah, and as we'll see, I don't think anyone could have turned this around. Mulholland was by no means the only European coach looking for a new job in 1997 with only three coaches that were there at the start of Super League One in 1996 still having their jobs through 1997. It was an incredible attrition rate that I don't think we've come close to here in Australia. It was hard for Paris from the start to develop a roster. They and London were viewed as outside the norm of Super League clubs. So they were excluded from the quota system, which meant that they could stock their sides with the best talent from Australia and New Zealand. This meant that there was some fraudulence to the Paris experience that I think has been righted since with a lot of French players coming through Catalans and Toulouse in the last few years. This was basically as Critics called it 12 Aussies and a Kiwi. I mean, it's demoralising, right? And not even particularly well-regarded Aussie players. You had some talent that we know. Jason Martin was there at halfback, Tony Priddle, Wayne Singh. You had John Lomax's younger brother David there. But it wasn't the it wasn't a star studded <laughs> roster by any means. You reminded me of the great Billy Birmingham, Ian's brother Greg. Yeah. <laughs> But what made it even worse was the way the players were living. So they were put up in hotels that Peter Mulholland said, we lived in a hotel where the rooms had no kitchens and were so small you couldn't swing a cat. Apart from training and playing, the players had no life outside of the hotel. Understandably, there was boredom. It's like the players were permanently on tour and at times they struggled to stay focused. (laughs) The way he's painted that picture, like it's a minimum security prison camp. Yeah. They're in Paris, for Christ's sakes. Yeah, I think they were given nothing to support themselves. So this was one anonymous player. We were told they would give us cars and help us to find a unit to live in, but instead we were given cars to use as a group, which, uh, all right, we'll use them as a group. I don't have much sympathy there. If you wanted to find a unit, you had to do it by yourself, even though you couldn't speak the language. (laughs) 
Get the train. Like the metro is pretty good over there, I reckon. <laughs> well, that was actually advice from management. Uh, on training and games, this player said, for the first home game, the bus didn't turn up, so we had to catch cabs in peak hour. We have to catch buses to the gym and training. It's that entitlement culture. That's why I think they felt so bad. As in, they're usually on a pedestal in the towns they play in, north of England, Newcastle, Sydney, something like that, Townsville, where they're on a pedestal and people bend over backwards to help them. In Paris, they're like, this guy has a thick neck. Get out of my way, you know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I tend to have more sympathy for the players. I think, yes, they're they're used to being on a pedestal, but you're used to being treated a certain way. You're used to having access to quality training equipment and facilities. Yeah, I get that part of it, but just this, like, growing adults can't catch a cab. It's like, grow up. But all living in a squalid hotel with no kitchens. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) I agree with you that maybe we should question that unabashed sympathy because Jason Martin, for example, he loved his Paris experience. He said this, I'm just having a ball living over in Paris. The lifestyle there is great and my fiance and I are really making the most of it. Paris is so different to anything back here and it's been a great opportunity for me. And he's one player who left the hotel. He managed to find a unit in the middle of Paris, live there and and experience the Parisian life while playing football. How did he do it, though? How did he find his own accommodation in life? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, couldn't his teammates have asked him how he did it? <laughs> but by and large, the experience wasn't great for the players, and maybe it was false promises as well. One player said, it's been a stuff-up from day one. They just don't give a damn about the club. If they call it Super League, they are joking. To me, that says a lot because whatever you want to say about players' entitlement and inability to look after themselves, when you've been sold the Super League vision and how this was going to change the game and finally give players the money they deserve and the professionalism that they were after, and then you put them in these conditions, well, I wouldn't be too happy either. It's bizarre that they treated it. I mean, I don't know they had a lot of other problems in Super League, but Paris was a, just such a great opportunity, man. Just yeah. squandered. Yeah, and it was just managed terribly. So during the World Club Challenge, it came to light that the players weren't even on the right visas. They were playing with the club on tourist visas. There was no local tax being paid. The visas were to run out while they were on tour in Australia. There was no guarantee that they were going to be let back into the country at the end of the three weeks. Let me ask you a question, Uh Peroxide and rugby league, visas and rugby league, is there similarity? (laughs) (laughs) So the police were getting involved. There were threats of fines and and jail terms for the organisers who were employing them illegally. So this sent Super League in Australia into damage control. Rebecca Wilson said that they'd been assured by the English Rugby League that work visas would be issued as soon as they returned to France, which raised the question for me, why weren't work visas issued when, when the contracts were signed? Some of the oversights of the most important stuff. Yeah. After oxygen and food and water, visas are probably the yeah. fourth one. Uh, and Rebecca Wilson goes on to say, the police are investigating it. It has nothing to do with us. It's an issue for EuroLeague. So there you go. We can wash our hands. We've done nothing wrong. It's not our issue. So as it turned out, it did manage to get sorted and players came back, played out the season. 
but it was clear that it wasn't going to last. So there were no foundations laid. There was no money. There was no real local presence or enthusiasm for the club. So crowds were awful all year. But in that came some signs of life and signs for the future with the fact that they took a couple of games to the south of France and drew good crowds. So they got 8,000 people to a game in Narbonne and there was an idea that maybe this could work not in Paris. So at least they managed to have a look at the future in that way. We need to talk to somebody with an insight into the French rugby league experience because I don't understand how it works in Catalan and it doesn't work in Paris. Yeah. Now it's different areas, but I mean, it's still rugby league in France and one of them was just poison, box office poison, and the other one sort of went okay. Yeah, and I could be wrong and experts know better, but I think even the glory years of French rugby league in the 50s, I think that was located outside of Paris too and, and maybe in the south. But yeah, forgive my ignorance on this subject, but I think it's always been that way. I think maybe there's some provincial aspect to it, but it's interesting. Well, I just can't accept in any country, South Africa, Ireland, France, that anyone would choose to watch rugby union over league. And it just happens all the time. Yeah, it's just a, a cultural thing, I guess. I can't understand either, but here we are. But at the end of 1997, Paris, who finished second last, so they weren't in line for relegation, but they were put on a two-year sabbatical. And that two years has now extended through to two decades and counting. <laughs> but I mentioned that Sheffield and Paris game at the start and the fact that there was so much promise in the early days of Super League and talk about expansion to all these places. On top of Paris, you had the success of the London Broncos who were going off in 1997. So they made it to the finals of the World Club Challenge and domestically they had a great year as well, finishing second in the league. Another paradise lost. Yeah. And we mentioned when we talked about Wigan that they had to sell a fire in Edwards to London to make money, uh, which instantly boosted the credibility and the on-field success of London. But what it also shows is that London were in some ways this mirror image of Wigan. So they were this young and brash team. They were improving on the field as Wigan were declining. And they represented the promise of England's future in rugby league outside the M62 corridor, Wigan with this declining Northern Empire. And there was legitimate reason for excitement about London going into 1997. I wish to God they capitalised on it. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that came down to those two marquee signings, a fire in particular. This was complicated by the fact that he'd signed a deal with Bedford Rugby Union as well. So he could only play a certain number of matches for the Broncos then there were reports that he was going to quit them altogether and just focus on rugby union. He luckily shared your view on why you'd prefer playing rugby union, eventually quitting Bedford and saying that he preferred league and he was going to concentrate on that and ended up staying another two seasons after 1997 with the Broncos. Their other big marquee signing was Sean Edwards, who in addition to helping Wigan out by reducing their wage bill, had some pressing needs to be in London, and that was to be with his pregnant girlfriend, Heather Small, lead singer of M People, which no matter how many times I read it, the phrase Sean Edwards and his girlfriend, yeah. M People singer Heather Small, it will never seem real to me. The single most surprising part of the series. It's a case of moving on down for her. <laughs> but, um, 
But fair play to him. What a punching up situation. But yeah. I always rated him as a tough player too, and that's just uh, giving me extra love for the guy. But them getting a legit halfback, major signing. Mm. And he was great at the Broncos. For some reason, he decided to leave and headed to Bradford, which I think you can understand that they were the new glamour club and he thought he could win a competition. But, I mean, London were improving as well. As I said, they finished second in the league. As it turns out, the Bradford move didn't last. He fell out with players and administration after 12 games and headed straight back to London. But so it was an exciting year for the Broncos on field. And off field, it was even more exciting. So they had the injection from the Brisbane Broncos, who took ownership. Barry Maranta had gone over to be their chairman. But that was only phase one in the evolution. And the really exciting part was Richard Branson taking interest and then ultimately a majority stake in the club. I mean, seriously, how did it go pear-shaped with all these components? Yeah. You know, test halfback. Yeah. you got Richard Branson on board, known winner. I know. It just really sucks. And he got really into it from the start. This was his quote on the Broncos. Rugby league is one of Britain's fastest growing sports, but so far has been completely underdeveloped in the South. It's an extremely exciting game. I watch soccer regularly, but I think rugby league is a far more entertaining sport. The fact that he genuinely liked it was so cool. Yeah. And pulled off a major coup on the day of Princess Diana's death when all other sporting fixtures were cancelled. He managed to convince them to let the Broncos play. They were taking on Bradford in London that day. He moved strings to get the game to go ahead with the condition that they'd get rid of the glitz and the cheerleaders and the off-field stuff that London included as part of their match day experience. I think it's what Diana would have wanted. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's funny because he was close friends with Diana and so he gave an address to the crowd before the game. He'd been in a car accident a few years earlier and Diana had actually written him a letter. So he read out that letter uh, about his recovery from the car accident and at the end said, if only we could read this letter to Diana. <laughs> his publicity addiction knows no bounds. <laughs> and interesting fact, he was actually brought along to the Broncos by Australian and English radio legend John O'Coleman. Who was inexplicably huge in Britain. Yeah. <laughs> I know you wouldn't have picked that in the, you know, Jono and Dano days in the late 80s, early 90s Sydney radio scene, but yeah, he had a great career. Well, same with Ugly Phil. He went big over there too, pretty big. It's like, Did he really? Can we get generic hack DJs and um, turn them into superstars? <laughs> yes, we can. So Branson's arrival made it a really exciting time for London. He didn't last that long, really, Like, but when he was replaced, it was with more big money men coming in, and it was all looking so good. And that off-field, they never quite got there, but it was sustained for some time. I put it down to the switch to the Harlequins in 2006, which I think was just such a boneheaded move. My theory on this is... You don't want to be too close to the enemy. And they just took their branding, shared their ground, and the branding was clownish, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about it, when you're taking on the branding of an established club, it makes you seem the lesser of that partnership. Well, I'll be honest, at the time, I thought it was actually a good idea because I was an imbecile. But like, um, I just thought, oh, yeah, it's established. They've got this history. It's going to give them credibility. But then you're right. It's just like little brother. Yeah. 
English experts could probably tell us more about why the successful London didn't continue. And I mean, it's good to see that the Broncos are still around, but I don't know what sort of footprint they have in the London sporting market. But they did well in this tournament to make the quarterfinals. So let's get to the quarterfinals, uh, which the first game was Auckland taking on Bradford, which was a scheduling disaster for the Warriors. You can chalk this up to number 52 in the list of things that Super League didn't bank on when planning this tournament, which was the fact that the quarterfinals were to be played after the conclusion of the domestic season, which meant that if you're a team that didn't make the semifinals, you had a good five weeks of not playing before your first World Club Challenge quarterfinal. Terrific. And that's exactly what happened to Auckland. Frank Endicott said, we are currently negotiating to play another game during that period against the Hunter Mariners who will be in the same position as us. I don't know if that game went ahead. If it did, I think it was something behind closed doors. But, yeah, the Mariners were in the same boat. They'd made the finals of the World Club Challenge despite missing out on the Super League domestic season. And (laughs) I like this in Super League magazine. Their season wasn't over yet, and after freshening up for several weeks while the Premiership final series went ahead, (laughs) they launched their campaign. Do you think freshening up meant on the drink in (laughs) vertical? Just leave out that for several weeks. Freshening up for several weeks. <laughs> There's nothing like several weeks off on the beach for match fitness. <laughs> like professional rugby leagues club having to schedule their own makeshift matches, <laughs> you yeah. know, turning shirts inside out. Uh, as it turns out, it didn't really matter too much with Auckland beating Bradford 62 to 14. So that was their third match against Bradford in the series. As we said, a credible 20-16 to 16 scoreline in the first match, even though Warriors played half the game a man down. Then 64-14 to 14 and 62-14. to 14. One day later, Brisbane were up against St. Helens in Brisbane and beat them 66-12. to 12. So the first two matches of the quarterfinals are combined 128-26 to 26 win for Australasia. Frank Endicott wasn't a fan of that Brisbane-St. Helens game, saying that game in Brisbane was just a joke. St. Helens were pathetic. They had absolutely no kill in the tackle. But it was a good result for Steve Renoff, who had broke a personal milestone uh, after he'd scored four tries on two previous occasions in the Australian Premiership. And on both of those occasions, Bennett had taken him out of the game, which he was disappointed about. Uh, And of this game... Renoff said, after I scored my fourth try, he sent a message out with one of the trainers that I had until full time to get a fifth. The rest of the boys were geeing me up as the game went on, saying I only had so many minutes left, but at the same time, they were trying to set me up with a chance. (laughs) Just treating it like a training gal. Yeah. (laughs) He was happy to get the five tries, but he knew what it was. He said, I wouldn't hold it in as high regard as the times when I've scored four tries in premiership matches because the defence obviously wasn't as tough. And on the other side of the world, the Hunter Mariners and Cronulla Sharks were taking on Wigan and London, respectively. So for Wigan, this was their only chance to salvage something from the season. As it turns out, they lose the game at home to a team that by then, it was more than speculation. It was clear that whenever they lost in the World Club Challenge, they would have played their last game. So impressive for the Mariners to keep getting up for it. 
And then the next day, Cronulla completed the route with a 40-16 to 16 win. Richard Branson on the game said, We knew we never beat them, but we didn't get thrashed. The difference was just two or three players. How do you feel about the face of the franchise just admitting that? That's not very good form. Maybe that half of the statement isn't, but at least he showed some hope for the future with the rest of it. I wouldn't have liked to have been out there myself against the Sharks. They have some very big lads. But three years from now, we'll have them back and give them a thrashing, hopefully before then. So giving the fans some hope for the future. But with that loss, it meant that the World Club Challenge was now down to three teams from Australia and one from New Zealand. So not the result that Super League organisers were after, but one that had been telegraphed from before the first ball had been kicked. And the first of those finals was Brisbane taking on Auckland, which was described by Peter Falingos as one of the best games of the year. He actually said that it was a better game than the ARL Grand Final, which had just occurred. Uh, But I think this statement is the most illustrative in Falingos' match report. For some reason, the Broncos and Warriors managed to generate as much passion and commitment as Manly and Newcastle. (laughs) So I love that, for some reason. (laughs) For some reason, they managed to get up for this meaningless contest. But they were among the only ones that did, with the match drawing only 9,686 people to ANZ Stadium. Mm. Brisbane's game against St. Helens the week before only drew 6,000 at the same venue, which... Two weeks earlier, at the grand final there, they played before 58,000. So if ever there was a sign that the public had completely given up on this series and this season of Rugby League, it was all there in the postseason crowds for the World Club Challenge. And it was all there in the lethargy of the Sharks too. Matt Rogers' quote on the tournament in his book was, I shudder to think what team we would have fielded if we'd gone to Auckland and played Brisbane in the final. I was completely footballed out. It was the middle of October and most of us wanted to be sitting on the beach somewhere. And unfortunately, that's exactly how we played. So the Hunter Mariners went on to beat Cronulla 22-18. to But on top of the players being burnt out, it's no wonder Cronulla lost with John Lang's schedule. So how's this? He loses the grand final against Brisbane. A couple of days later, he's flying to Auckland for the Australian test match against New Zealand, gets home from that, goes to the Sharks' end-of-season function, the next day heads over to England with the Sharks for the World Club Challenge, comes back, has the game against the Mariners, and then a week later he's back in England for the Test Series. Wow. Not that he gave up on the World Club Challenge with Matt Rogers saying that he had the whip out at training, uh, but in Rogers' words, he was flogging a dead horse. It was a match that was played without much spirit or skill. The match report in Super League magazine said, in a game played on a hot night in which the sweat factor made the securing of the ball more difficult than usual, both sides were guilty of turning possession over too often during the first 60 minutes which once again emphasises the very narrow window of climate in which professional footballers can be reasonably expected to catch footballs. (laughs) I just want to focus on the Mariners' effort for a second. As I said, they had some advantages in the World Club Challenge being in Pool B, which meant that all they needed to do was top that group where they were playing alongside the Reds the Rams and the Cowboys, who were, you know, anchored to the bottom of the table, they may have got an easy ride through to the finals in that respect, but they travel to England, they beat Wigan. They come back, they beat the grand finalist Cronulla. 
And this is while all this off-field turmoil is going on, it had been made, if not explicitly clear, it was obvious that there was no future for the Hunter Mariners. It's a remarkable achievement and remarkable spirit showed by the team. It's an absolute testament to the culture Murray built with, um, was it CEO Bob Ferris and Robert Finch was involved in the football department. So they had this island of misfit toys, underdogs the whole season, built this culture, unearthed Kamali, Scott Hill, all these like gun players. Got the most out of guys like Carlisle and Paul Marquette. Just a real feel-good team. And I remember the buzz in the media when they made the final. There was a lot of um, begrudging respect from ARL types even. Mm. Yeah, I seem to even remember some well wishes from the Knights about the World Club Challenge final. So, well, let me ask you this: like, what if they won? I mean, it might have saved a bit of credibility—not credibility, but it would have put a feel-good spin on the final at least. Yeah, it, it would have. It would have been the only way that tournament could have salvaged anything was if the Hunter Mariners <laughs> had have won. It would have been a really cool thing. As it turns out, it, uh, Brisbane won 36 <laughs> to 12. and Unfortunately, we don't deal in Woodhoffs in yeah. the uh... <laughs> <laughs> So that match, I'm going to spend zero time talking about the actual on-field final because I think it's basically forgotten to time. I don't think even the players have much of a memory of it. But there's some interesting things about it in the lead-up. The first of which was the idea that the final would be taken abroad. So it was floated that they would be going to Hong Kong at the same stadium where the Hong Kong Sevens were played. So giving some Deloitte expats some variety on their weekends. (laughs) Give up on Hong Kong. It's not going (laughs) to happen. Rebo said that Japan could also be in play. East Japan. So all these things were going on, which uh, this was Dean Ritchie in the Daily Telegraph wrote. In a bid to boost flagging interest, Super League may take the Visa World Club Challenge final to Asia. I love that in a bid to boost flagging interest. Like, juxtapose that with John Rebo on the footy show in 1995 talking about taking the game to China, this big statement about the future of rugby league, and now they're trying to ship the final offshore to (laughs) boost flagging interest. It wasn't the vision as he originally conceived it. I'm as guilty as anyone of blindly expecting the rest of the world to love rugby league like I do. I got a rude shock in London when I realised that no one, and I mean no one, gave a fuck. (laughs) Even the Australians there hardly even cared. No one cares about this sport outside of like our three little areas we've got. Yeah, it's a real shame. But as it turns out, going to Asia was a bit too far, so they settled for Auckland, which was described by... The Warriors' chief executive, Bill McGowan, as potentially the biggest sporting event to ever take place in the country. Maybe that could have been true if the Warriors had made it. So it was a bit unfortunate they lost that game to the Broncos because, uh, as Frank Endicott said, I think if we made it, it would have been a sellout. Now they'll be lucky to get it half full. I mean, if his auntie had bollocks, she'd be his uncle. (laughs) As it turns out, they just scraped over the line and drew slightly more than 10,000 people, but not a huge success on field. Honestly, we're getting to the point now in this saga where what if this happened? What if history was different? You know, Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's crazy. It's true. It's, I guess everyone just wants to see a situation where it could have worked because it so spectacularly didn't. I'll leave the on-field of the tournament with Jeff Dunn in The Australian 
who wrote of the Broncos' win, their victory was scored in one of the most lethargic rugby league environments imaginable. <laughs> Two Australian teams playing a month after the domestic season has been completed in front of a small crowd in Auckland. In those yellow seats at Ericsson. Yeah. <laughs> those fluorescent eye magnet seats that are empty. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just spend a bit of time analysing the extent of the mismatch. I've put together a combined World Club Challenge table. So leaving out the pool system, just ranking the teams 1 to 22. Even this was difficult to do because of the fact that six English teams only played four games. So instead <laughs> so of convoluted. <laughs> so instead of having a straight for and against system, I was forced to do a for and against average per game. So you had the 10 Australian teams occupying positions 1 to 10 on the table. The worst Australian team finished on eight points with four wins. That was the Perth Reds, who only won by an average of 7.33 a game, which was pretty pathetic considering the Broncos, who topped the table, won with an average of 36.33 points a game. And seven of the 10 Australian teams won with an average of at least 20 points, three of them breaking 30 points. Wigan finished best of the Super League teams with four points from two wins. One thing England can say is that more teams won a game than lost. So of the 12 teams, you had seven teams who won at least one game, Wigan the only one to win two, and only five who went winless. And I think it maybe illustrates something about the mismatch and maybe the depth of talent or lack of it in the Australian Super League is that of those seven winning teams, five of them had come from the second pool. So the weaker English teams who had to play the weaker Australian teams. So we don't want to be too quick to say how good Australia was when the likes of the Rams and the Reds were, you know, playing pretty poorly throughout the tournament. So of tries, Brisbane were the best team, scoring an average of 10 tries a game. Halifax conceded an average of 10 tries a game. So Brisbane scored 66, Halifax conceded 63. So of 64 games between Australian teams and European teams, uh, you had 56 wins to eight with an average scoreline of 39 to 14, which this is how bad it is. When I calculated that average scoreline, I was like, oh, that's not too bad. (laughs) There's a whole lot of uh, mental gymnastics we have to do in this series. (laughs) (laughs) But this tournament was reputational suicide for Super League. You can't understate how bad it made them look. So Super League were asked by journalists about the financials of the tournament. It was Paul Kent who put the question to Rebecca Wilson, and this was Kent's quote. For obvious reasons, no one within Super League wished to go on the record on such a financially embarrassing subject. Understandably, Chief Accountant for Super League, Martin McKinley, was unable to comment on the financial costs of running the competition. Super League media manager Rebecca Wilson returned a call to say no financial details would be given. (laughs) And like the money side of it isn't everything or even probably the worst of it, but to me it really stands out because... All we'd heard for two years was about how the ARL were amateurs, Rebo cared about finance, that now we were getting heavy hitters of the business world to run the game. And this is what they dish up. A game, what could they say? Yeah, here's the finances. It's a complete and utter shit show. (laughs) 
Also, Paul Kent in the Herald wrote, Aware of the massive costs involved, News Limited, which was financing the deal, had budgeted to lose $4 million on the tournament. One thing Super League did not budget on, however, was the awful state of the English game. <laughs> they budgeted when they were positive for a $4 million yeah. loss. Yeah. When they were buoyant. Yeah. I mean, going back to your point last week about loss leaders, but these business geniuses can do that, but they can't see that they were dealing with a complete mismatch. <laughs> Crowds across the board were a complete disaster. What about the 3,000 at Topper Stadium? Come on, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so that match you attended against Castlefoot, that was actually the best attendance they got. So <laughs> uh, about three and a half at that game. Their next two games, 2,110 and 1,965. Look out. And they're the official like yeah, recording yeah. to the crowd. So I don't know. <laughs> Guarantee they're working numbers. Yeah. So in England, they broke 10,000 only eight times and 15 English games were under 5,000, which is half the games in England. I had a look though, because it's obviously a different situation in England. There's smaller grounds. It's a smaller concentration of support. So on general... World Club Challenge crowds were usually about the same as their premiership crowd. So it was, you know, a couple thousand down here, a thousand or two up there, but it was reasonably consistent with the crowds they were getting all year anyway. But this had a knock-on effect for the rest of the season in Australia with crowds declining in the World Club Challenge and staying low and decreasing throughout the rest of the home season. So they'd started quite strong averaging 15,000 in the early weeks, that by the end of the year had declined to an average of 8,500. So a massive drop by the end of the season. And there may be even worse. I like this report about Shane Richardson. Shane Richardson has blamed the World Club Challenge for snapping the momentum of Super League's domestic competition and giving the ARL a head start in the build-up to the finals. Like That's exactly what you want when your finals are starting, a loss of momentum. <laughs> But from the English side of things, it caused some inward thinking. And we're not going to go in detail about all the problems with England and what was done to try to address them, because I'll have some news about that uh, at the end of this episode. But this was considered a wake-up call for English Rugby League, with Ray French, for instance, saying, the standard of the game back home leaves a lot to be desired. The players aren't as good as they think they are, and the World Club Challenge has shown that our top teams are well behind your side's. After the 1982 Kangaroo Tour, we had to go back to the drawing board and it seems we still haven't learnt from our mistakes. Which, like, go back to our Chapeltown Road series, we knew all of this after that Kangaroo Tour. So forget about all this inward thinking and we need to go back to the drawing board. Like, you've been at the drawing board for 15 years. <laughs> they need a new whole system of drawing. <laughs> but I don't want to set the slipper on them because... It's not like you just fix it like, oh, yeah, we're going to play harder, we're going to be fine. It's a complete cultural generational thing. It's like you can't just yeah. manufacture uh, innate love for a sport. They love soccer and that's it. Yeah, exactly. They're always up against it. But what I don't get is their actions to commission Joe Lydon to produce a report. This wasn't just due to the World Club Challenge. It was one of a number of factors that went into... More bloody reports. Yeah. So... He was tasked with looking at the state of English football, on-field, off-field, all the structures, all the pathways, 
the quotas of Australian players, etc. Like a, a sweeping report in into English rugby league. Uh, that report came up with a fifteen point conclusion. I'm, I'm going to read these fifteen points. Aussie players have better basic skill development. They have better game awareness. They have a more constructive attitude. They have better conditioning. Their competition is more intense. Playing rosters are managed ruthlessly with players who are not up to standard simply released. Aussie clubs have a superior player supply. There are better links between schools and clubs. Australia has a more efficient talent identification system. The education of coaches is more effective in Australia. Club facilities are superior. The investment by professional club towards junior development is more substantial. Development schemes are focused on defined geographical areas. The junior competitive structure minimises the dangers of youngsters playing too many matches. Is there a single point out of those 15 that couldn't have been delivered by anyone with a passing knowledge of rugby league? Why do we need a sweeping report to come up with what was blindingly obvious? (laughs) Yeah, crazy. But my point again with the overall problem is that you can get all those things sorted out and have a good club, like you have a nice pathways and, and identify juniors young and give them nice training facilities and good coaching and they're going to be good players, right? But what you can't have is national interest. You can't have mm. everybody striving to join the sport. It's yep. just not going to happen. So what no. can they do? Yeah, I don't know. And I think what could have helped was a different model for the initial investment by News Limited. Instead of just basically handing money to clubs to squander, like some kind of centralised model where you can build the game from within, not like place all the power within these clubs of ex-coal miners in a club somewhere in Yorkshire, you know, deciding the fate of your game. It's so funny to me that the working class rugby league men over here and the working class rugby league men over there, they're all known as cheap, you know, old coal miner, cheapskate type blokes, but they can squander money like there's nobody's business. It's like, it's like Brewster's millions over there. <laughs> so no easy solutions on England. Let's turn back to Australia and with the tournament concluded and turning Super League into a laughing stock, there were some recriminations to be made and a lot of questions as to who was responsible for this. Uh, and Paul Kent wrote that it was actually a player-led innovation. So he said, according to sources, it was the players who took the plan to Rupert Murdoch. Just to stop Kenty there, I'm assuming <laughs> by Rupert Murdoch he means someone significantly lower down the chain. <laughs> The way they in the Australian media framed it is in he was sitting there, you know, doing the draw. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> the matter was then discussed at board level with opinion split as to the competition's merit. Some thought it would work, others thought it was too expensive. But at the end of the day, it was the players who pushed it. The inmates had control of the asylum. The players pushed it and then couldn't get up for the games mysteriously. <laughs> And that went on to the idea that it was an act of benevolence. So Peter Falingos wrote, Super League's $6 million thank you gesture to its players in England and Australia has turned into a nightmare. Although Super League won't say so officially, the $6 million spent on the World Club Challenge was outlaid to thank the players for their loyalty to the cause over the past couple of years. Could you not have given every Super League player a return ticket to or from England and get better bang for your buck than what they did. I think you could have bought them all a Mercedes SLK each and then come out in front. No, I'll correct you there because I did some research. So I worked out that a 
brand new Hyundai XL in nineteen ninety seven cost thirteen nine ninety. So for six million dollars, you could have bought the top twenty players at each uh, of the ten Australian and twelve English clubs. You could have bought them all a brand new Hyundai XL. <laughs> oh man, what a loss, eh? But um, I think they had to do it to back up their big mouths in the talking a big game, you know. Yeah, but again, it was there in the original plan, top four sides. You know, forget about Salford feeling left out. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's a lot of heartfelt um, management in this era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The players are calling for it, you know, yeah. they're being loyal. What can we do? I mean, they want to do it, so our hands are tied. <laughs> I like this line in Rugby League Week. Before the six weeks of lopsided results began, Super League Supremos were yapping excitedly about the never-before-seen inter-hemisphere concept that would take the game to the world. By the end of it, however, it was a case of don't blame us, it was the player's idea. Most fingers were pointed at former player spokesman Chris Johns. It's like, again, the ARL are amateurs who can't run the game, but these international geniuses are happy to let Chris Johns decide on this multi-million dollar international tournament. As much as I love Chris Johns as a player, he was Rebo Jr. in this era yeah. in administration. <laughs> yeah. So it was then announced that the World Club Challenge was in review, which, as we all know, in rugby league means uh, Super League speak for this is the last time this idea will ever be mentioned. It sounds like it's in the same review of Paris Saint-Germain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that brings us to the conclusion of this chapter. And I'm just looking at my notes. I don't know when I wrote this and I can't even remember the exact context, but all I have was Super League were full of shit. And (laughs) if I try to work that out in my head, I think where I was coming from is what I've just been saying. Like when you sell yourselves as geniuses and the team that is going to take rugby league to new heights and have Laurie Daly on bedrooms in Beijing, and this is what you give us? Like, it's it's unforgivable. Well, I agree 100%, mate. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head through all this research, but they were held accountable for this. This was the nail yep. in the whole thing. Yep, absolutely. And uh, maybe it's something we need to weigh up at the end of the series, but I'm not sure how relevant the results of the World Club Challenge were for the ultimate fate of Super League. I think we were heading for reunification one way or the other. I think the public were largely apathetic to rugby league in this period, even without the World Club Challenge. But this just sums up everything about this season, well, in my opinion. in terms of PR disasters, branding disasters, it took a lot of their power in the bargaining table away. Mm. You can't go in and say, well, you know, you guys can't organise a comp, so give us more power because you just displayed your uh, managerial talents for yeah, all and- the world to see. Exactly. And any chance of a unified competition going ahead in Australia under the Super League branding, if that wasn't dead by the time of the World Club Challenge, this killed any chance that had. Well, it was poison anyway, but... Yeah. So that is where we leave the World Club Challenge. And in my research, I was looking at the English game and where it was at the time and how it fared in the immediate aftermath of the World Club Challenge, which I've decided to leave out of this chapter because we don't know enough about the ins and outs of English Rugby League. So I thought rather than us stumbling through it, we will go back to one of our experts, 
British Labor and Rugby League historian Anthony Broxton. So I'm going to be recording an interview with Anthony where we'll go through English Rugby League at this point in time, how we got there and where it went after. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to Anthony again about that. Yeah, terrific. He's a wealth of knowledge, that bloke. Yeah. So that is where we'll leave this chapter, which, (laughs) I mean, it's becoming a regular thing where I get to the end of a chapter and feel worse than I did when it started. Well, I'll give you um, absolute kudos and respect for that research because it must have been hard slog just reading the slow strangulation of the game you love. (laughs) Yeah, it's just sad, but I guess it's a footnote now and it's a curiosity that we can look back on with some fondness 25 years or so down the line. So that is the World Club. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm I'm trying to stay positive, but (laughs) that is where... (laughs) That is where we leave this chapter. So look out for my interview with Anthony Broxton, which will be coming out soon. Uh, And then following that, we're really getting close to the end. We will have our ARL season recap, which uh, there's a lot of fun things in store in that chapter. That one's a bit hazy for me, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, so I am too. uh, And that is all in store soon. So thank you for listening to this one, and we will speak to you next time. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.